Well, this morning we're going to finish up our series we've been doing on knowing the times. That God has a time and a purpose for every season under heaven, for everything that takes place in our lives and everything we're going through. God has a purpose. He has a plan that right, our whole goal in life is, Lord, what's your plan and how can we flow with it? How can we flow with what you want to do in us and through us? And, you know, he's trying to develop something in our lives, not just to enter into his kingdom, but that his kingdom would enter into us and that we could experience all that he has for us, that glorious things would take place within our hearts and in our lives. He wants to reveal his glory in us. And so there's actually three comparisons that we left that we haven't specifically brought out. Um, the first one we covered pretty well, and this was in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 4. Uh, it was a time, there's a time to mourn and a time to dance. Now we kind of touched on this subject early on in the series, talked about a time to weep and a time to laugh. Right? And so if we follow the pathway of Jesus, it won't always be, you know, laughter um, because he was the man of sorrows. He is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And if we're going to follow him as a disciple of the master, we'll have some of the same experiences, thankfully not to the same level. But right, he, we have to taste of the, all of the cups if we want to be like him, we taste the cups, at least a little sip from some of the cups he drank fully from. And so there is a time to weep. You know, he wept with Mary and Martha, and that was a time of weeping. And they had to experience that. Those days, can you imagine just the sorrow they felt those many days and what they went through? But all of those tears allowed Jesus to reveal himself as the one who is the resurrection and the life. And so there's seasons of sorrow we can go through and even the shadow of death where we, we have those tears and the sorrow we experience, but yet it's so that God can manifest himself in a new way as the resurrection and the life. So there are seasons of mourning, but the promise is he'll turn our mourning into dancing as we allow him to work in those seasons. But the, the, there's two more comparisons we're going to focus on for the rest of the message. Now, they might seem dissimilar, but actually there's a strong commonality uh, when you look at them. And, and I think that we can also consider these almost as a summary of all of these times and seasons uh, of how God wants to work. And so we're going to look at, at Ecclesiastes 3, verses 7 and 8. There's one in each one we're going to pick out. But in verse 7, it says, there's a time to rend and a time to sow. Then in verse 8, there's a time to love and a time to hate. Now, looking at the second one, I think we can all agree that God's ultimate purpose for us, for his people, is to know the fullness of his love, to experience that, to walk in it, Right, to come into that love, right? Because when we, when we love him and we love our neighbor, that's fulfilling all of the commandments, the whole law. Everything he came to give to us is fulfilled 
when we walk in his love. But you know, what this is bringing out is there's an aspect of the love of God that has to be considered because true love from God's perspective, it involves loving what he loves, but also hating what he hates. Now, in the world, there's kind of a message out there that, um, that any form of hatred is wrong. Now, of course, hating other people is wrong. It is always wrong. But it's kind of strange because sometimes people have that message of, you know, love and tolerance, but sometimes they can show hatred too if you don't agree with them. Right? But that's the world. It's the world we live in. But in God's kingdom, there is most definitely a time to love, but there's also a time to hate. And that's what we're, we'll look at and understand the balance between the two. You know, because we can, we can know that, that because God proclaims, you know, he proclaims his love all throughout scripture, but he also proclaims that there's things he hates in many places in scripture. Proverbs tells us seven specific things. Proverbs 6 and verse 16, he says, these six things the Lord hates, even seven are an abomination to him. You know, if something is an abomination to our creator, we want to know what they are and stay far away from them. Seven, verse 17, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. There's probably other things that the Lord hates, right, that are in Scripture and that I think we can understand, but this is a list of seven things that the, the soul of our Creator says He abhors. Again, notice He's not saying He hates a person, uh, but the wicked actions and intentions, often it's the, the hidden things, the intentions of the heart, that sometimes they, they're manifested in actions, and he hates those things. But Jesus, he was the perfect lamb of God upon earth, and he gave himself as a sacrifice for, of love for mankind because he loved to do the will of his Father. But, you know, in doing so, he, he, he demonstrated this love for what his father loved, but he also demonstrated a hatred for what his father hated. And nowhere is that seen more clearly, well, it's seen all throughout the ministry, his ministry when he would rebuke those who were embracing the things his father hated. But, you know, we, we see that action happen many times. But actually, before I get to that, that's right, there's a verse I want to bring out. In Psalm 45, that's prophetic of Christ, Psalm 45, 7, it says, You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And so Jesus, he loved righteousness, but he hated wickedness. He hated wickedness. So he walked in the way of love towards the people of God, and really towards anyone who came to him with an open heart. He, show, he shared the love of his father, whether they received him or not. But he also hated wickedness, especially hypocrisy. You know, if, if you can, 
I'm not adding to the list, but you could say outside of that list, he also really hated hypocrisy. Right? When, of course, when, the, when some of the religious leaders came who weren't living the life, he'd say, you hypocrites. You appear one thing, but you're really living the other thing. They were embracing things that his father hated. Of course, Jesus could see into their hearts and see the, the proud look and the lies and all that that was taking place. And one of the most prominent examples we see of this hatred of, you know, evil ways was at the beginning and the end of his ministry. When Jesus came into the temple, and that was to be the, the holy place of the presence of his father, place of reverence and awe where, pe- where people could meet with him And what did he find? He found commerce, extortion, because they were really ripping people off there, like selling, they were selling sacrifices. They could only buy them there and they sold them at exorbitant prices. And that enraged him because he hated wickedness. And that was there. And that was supposed to be the house of prayer, the house of the presence of God. And so under the anointing, he drove all the money changers and the sellers of animals out. Sometimes we feel like doing that when we see wickedness, but we, we can't do that. We're only under the anointing. But, you know, we're, obviously there's so much wickedness, we can't respond that way every, every time we see it. But Jesus did that for a sign for us to tell us there is a time to love and there's a time to hate what he hates. Paul said in Romans 12 9, he says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Here is genuine love. Right? We hear the message of love preached, but you have to preach the full message to understand what is the love of God. Genuine love is abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is true. You know, love without an abhor- abhorrence of evil is actually not love. It's not true love from God's perspective. I mean, we can understand that with the relationship with a man and a woman, with marriage. You know, if we love our spouse and if our spouse loves us, we have that, uh, uh, a united love and we hate the thought of there being any other love in that relationship, a third love in there. We abhor that thought because it's a love between a man and a woman between a husband and wife. And if anything comes close to that, that's when trouble comes, right? Because that, right, true love has an abhorrence of that. You know, and if we love the life, you know, the other examples of, you know, hating what is, what is wicked, you know, there's that balance there. If we love life, the life God's given to us, then we should hate murder, Right? If we love what God has given to us, this life and this opportunity to be here, then we should hate what is wicked, which is murder, which is the taking of life. If we love the truth, we don't love the truth really unless we hate lies. You could keep going down the list. If we love humility, then we should hate pride. If we love unity, then we should hate discord because that destroys unity. Right? And so you can't have true love without really hating the opposite because the opposite, why we hate it, is because it destroys what is true. 
Now, I've mentioned this a couple times, but one, one area we have to be careful of is, is not allowing you know, this hatred to, to apply to people. Right? Scripture is very clear that this hatred is for wickedness, for actions and motives, but it's not for the person who's demonstrating it. Instead, if someone's demonstrating this wickedness, really our, our feeling should be sorrow and compassion because they've been taken snare by that. They're bound by that wickedness and they need to be set free. You know, Jesus made it clear in Matthew 5 and verse 44. He said, you've heard it said, you should love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. And so th- this, what's kind of, kind of crazy is this is, must be something that was preached because he said, you have heard it said, it's, it's, you need to love your neighbor, right? Those who you live near and who are nice to you, but it's okay to hate your enemies. But I say unto you, that's not okay. <laughs> you need to love your enemies and pray for them when they mistreat you. We're to have compassion that God might have mercy on them and, you know, if by chance, bring them into the knowledge of the truth. That is genuine love in God's kingdom. Now, I mentioned that there's a commonality uh, with the other comparison in verse 7, that there's a time to rend and a time to sow. Now, rend basically means to tear or to cut, to, to remove, you know, to rip something out. The most common word used for this in the Old Testament by far was in reference to sorrow when someone would rend their garments, right? So you're reading the Old Testament and it it talks about someone rending their garments. Now, I think I mentioned this in Bible study the other time, but, you know, we open our closet and we have lots of clothes because clothes are cheap today. I mean, you know, we give them away because we get too many of them. But, you know, in the Old Testament, if And and in those days, if you had more than one change of clothes, you were well off because they were expensive to, you know, they had to be woven by hand and, and all sorts of things. And so if someone was showing real sorrow, genuine sorrow, and they, they wanted to proclaim that they would often take a knife and make a cut because those clothes were sturdy, right? So they'd cut it and then rip it down and it would, it would destroy their, that garment. Right? It, would, it would be uh, marred. And so they would rend their garments as a sign of mourning. You know, when Jacob was told that Joseph had died, he rent his garment uh, and mourned many days. And also David, when he heard that Saul and Jonathan had died, it said he, he and his men rent their garments. It's an outward sign of mourning. Of course, what, what is most important to God is not the outward, it's the inward. It's in our hearts. Joel 2.13, the Lord said, and this is in the Old Testament, you know, they, they were happy to rend their garments and even spend money, you know, on something expensive, rending their garments and have to have to throw it away or sew it back up, I guess. I don't know. But they were they were happy to do that on the outside, but the Lord said, so rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. So what God is truly looking for 
is a change of heart and mind. You know, from the context of our comparisons, we're really talking about is a rending or tearing out of our hearts anything that God hates that is not pleasing to him. You know, and as much as the Bible is full of descriptions of the glory of God and his kingdom and the glorious things he wants to put within us, it's also full of descriptions of things that he wants out of us, right? That he wants to, to, to cleanse from us those things that keep us from following him, that cause us to fall short of the glory of God. And the problem is, is that they are things our heart is naturally inclined after. That, you know, we naturally want to follow. As Jeremiah said in, in Jeremiah 17, 9, he said, the heart of man is desperately wicked. It's deceitful. And we can't trust our heart. You know, we're born with that uh, nature that's inclined to horrible things that God hates, like deception and lying and falsehoods and so forth. You know, it is quite amazing when you think about a little child. You know, sometimes you think, well, what does a child know unless it's taught? You know, it's, it's kind of amazing how a little child does not need to be taught to lie. <laughs> it just pops out of them sometimes. Did you break that? Who, me? No, I didn't break that. Are you sure? Well, okay, maybe I did. <laughs> you know, they need to be taught not to lie because mischief and naughtiness sometimes comes naturally, but it's because of the nature that they were born with. You have to teach them what is right because of that nature. And so a big, part, a big part of the journey in our life is allowing God to come in by his spirit and rend those things out of our hearts and out of our lives. And of course, we have a part in that. And sometimes we have to, we have to perform an action to, to initiate God coming in by his spirit. You know, Paul says there's actually things we need to do. In Colossians 3.8, he talks about things we put off of ourselves. He says, but now you yourselves are to put off these things. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. All right, and so there's things that we, make, we need to make the decision. I'm going to take that off. I'm going to stop that. I'm going to not do that. I'm gonna, and the, the figure of speech here is like a garment. Well, if my garment's dirty, I have to, you know, what good does it do to put on a new garment on top of an old dirty one? You're still going to smell. I need to take that off and be cleansed, and then God will give us something new to put on. And so there's things, there's, there's works in our, and practices in our lives that are, that are not pleasing to God that we have to put off. And we need to open ourselves and say, Lord, is there anything I'm doing or that's not pleasing to you. Help me to put those things off. Show them to me that I can be cleansed and made clean and, and do those things that you love. Now, there's other things that are a little harder to put off. Right? Instead, we have to put them to death by not feeding upon them. You know, one of the, I, like, I actually like the King James, how it, the word it uses, it uses the word mortify mortify the deeds of the flesh. Paul says this in Colossians 3, verse 5, a few verses earlier. He says, Mortify your members which are upon the earth, which is fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, 
and covetousness, which is idolatry. All right, so those are a list of things that can get power over us that we really have trouble getting rid of. And so what we have to do is cease to feed upon and give life to those things in our, in our heart. And, it, and it's kind of like, the, actually the word mortify means to put to a slow death by depriving it of life. You know, like you put a tourniquet on your arm and you cut off the blood flow, it deprives it of the flow, blood flow and life and eventually it'll die. But that's what we have to do to those things is put them to death. And that's what we can do to sin and to inclinations towards that. But in doing so, we're putting off those things that God hates so that we can experience the second part of this comparison, which is there is a time to sow. Now, sowing, I don't sow. (laughs) I've tried. I remember the one time I button came off my suit. The next time I wore it, pop. <laughs> and I took it back to our, the seamstress we all go to. She, she did it right. right. But sewing is basically, it's a joining and a binding together of two things, two parts, and making it one. And in reality, there's an opportunity in this life to rend out the things from our lives and hearts that would displease God, but we don't stop there because we can be joined with God and, ha- and receive those things that please Him and make them a part of our lives so that they're one. We weren't born with it, but they can be added to us. He can sow them into our hearts. And so there is a time to sow and be joined unto the things that God loves of course, there's our part that we play. As it says in Proverbs 3 and verse 3, it says, Let not mercy and truth forsake you, but bind them around your neck. Write them upon the table of your hearts. And so it's that sense of we are to do the action of the seeking and the crying out and holding on to it and not letting it go. But God does the supernatural work. He does the sowing, which I'm glad. And so there's seasons where God is speaking to us and he's desiring to do a specific work to join us with a specific truth. And he wants to work that in our lives. And, you know, there's so many wonderful things God wants to join us to. That we have the opportunity to receive in this life of, you know, of his truth, his mercy, his meekness, humility, perseverance, compassion, and all of those good fruits that he wants to have within us all represented by his love. Our part needs to be to respond to him and say, Lord, let not those things leave me. Let them be written in my heart. Let them be joined to me as you're in a new way, like a garment that's sewed together. You know, and I'm always amazed how you can take a garment and get it sewed. And it's almost like you can't even tell where it was sewn. That's how good God is. The problem comes is when our old ways haven't been rent. It doesn't really work to combine the old with the new. And Jesus shared that parable. In fact, we, you know, we talked about the new wineskins, but you know, there, there's also the parable of the new and old garment. Mark 2 and verse 21. No man sews a piece of new cloth to an old garment, 
Else the new piece, when it when that fills it, takes when it fills it up, takes away from the old, and the rent is made worse. Now, of course, when you when you wash that garment, the new part's going to shrink, and it's just going to tear up the old. And so God wants to take His new things and join them with us, but the new can't be joined with the old, or the garment will be destroyed because they're incompatible. Now I'll close with this final comparison. And it's a good illustration of what we've been discussing. And you have two individuals, King Saul and King David. All right, King Saul, he was, cho- he was called by God. He was chosen as king. He was anointed. He followed God. He was, you know, the, the Spirit of God came upon him. He prophesied. Is Saul among the prophets? I mean, he flowed with what God had for him. He also had some things that needed to be dealt with that God wanted to, to rend. Of course, God's rending is sometimes it's surgical. He can circumcise our hearts. He can, he can or- orchestrate situations where he just comes and removes that. Other times we cry out to him for a long season, but then he brings the victory. And he wanted to do that in King Saul, but King Saul never submitted to that process. He had an opportunity to do so. I mean, he had, he had the prophet Samuel as a mentor. Imagine that. I mean, that's a pretty good mentor to have, the anointed prophet. You know, he could have gone and hurt, gotten the word of the Lord and encouragement and direction anytime he wanted it. I have a feeling he didn't avail himself of that too often. Samuel was willing to help and guide him. Samuel even constantly prayed for him. But in the end, Saul refused to change. He embraced his own way and the way the people wanted him to go because he wanted the approval of the people. And one time when Samuel basically said, you know, you've done wrong, and Samuel turned to leave, Saul grabbed a hold of Samuel's garment and tried to stop him, and he rent Samuel's garment and tore it. And so Samuel turned to Saul, 1 Samuel 28, 17, And Samuel said unto him, The Lord has torn or rent the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, who is David. So Saul would not change. And it was like God trying to take a new piece of cloth and joining with the old, but it wasn't compatible. And, you know, that's the thing. If we're not, if we don't allow God to rend those things from us, we become rent anyway in the end. Like, Sam, like Saul. What God wanted to do was taken. It was rent from him and his promises, and they were given to David. But David, the difference was he was a man after God's own heart who sought to do his will. That was his, it's like he made it his mission in life to discover those things that were pleasing unto God, you know, to sit in his presence, inquire in his temple, to walk in those ways, to not give sleep to his eyes or slumber to his eyelids until he found a place for, for the presence of God. And that represented you know, the, the tabernacle of David, but in his life as well. Psalm 40 and verse 8, where David declared, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. He loved what God loved and he hated what God hated. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. 
What about all, all of the trouble David had? He was not a perfect man, and he had some very deep flaws that, you know, were unfortunate how, how that had to take place. It almost destroyed him. But he was able to find a way back to God. It, took a, it was a long, hard, painful road. But he loved God. And he was willing to do whatever it took to be restored. And in the end, he just wanted to be joined unto God. To love what he loved and hate what he hates. He was willing to let that process of rending and separation take place, of cleansing and repentance, so that he could be raised up in newness of life. And so, you know, as we're considering this series and kind of closing this out, it's that thought that we need to meet with God in these times and seasons and allow him to do what he is desiring to do, what he wants to work within us, Real, and, and in reality, the whole purpose of all of these different seasons and all of these different times that we're going through and different experiences, it is all comes down to rending out those things in our lives that don't flow with what God loves, that they flow more with what he hates. To rend those out and separate us from what will cause us to fall short of the glory of God so that he can bring us into times and seasons of putting on and sowing and joining us with the things that he loves, his nature within us, of having what he loves written upon the fleshly tables of our hearts, that we can know the joy of all eternity of having that work done within us. You know, I mean, I think... If we allow him to do that, we're just for all eternity, we're just going to be like, Lord, I'm so grateful for what you did in me. You might even thank yourself. Oh, I'm so grateful that you let, <laughs> you said yes to the Lord in that situation. And now I have the reward of that for all eternity. Just think of your future self, <laughs> what you're going to say to yourself. Oh, I'm so glad you said yes and let the Lord rend that out. And then you said yes to letting the Lord write something new. That's what we want our eternity to be like. Amen. Amen. Lord, we just thank you, Lord, for your plan and your, pur your purpose. Lord, that you're leading us in the times and the seasons, Lord, and they're, they're, our times are in your hands. And Lord, we recognize you're trying to do a good work within us. And Lord, we cry out to you that you would, Lord, even help us to recognize that, help us to, to respond to that, to yield Lord, to your hand working within us, Lord, of Lord, revealing those things. Lord, we even ask you, Lord, help us, oh God, to, to just submit to, you, to the work of your hands. Oh God, Lord, dealing with things in our lives. Oh God, and Lord, would you lead us into your presence? Oh, lead us, oh God, and cause those, beauti those beautiful works to be in our hearts and written upon us, we pray. We thank you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.